All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. You're listening to the Timeout Podcast, a show where we talk with leading surgeons about their careers and the lessons that they've learned along the way. My name is Jason, and today we're very lucky to be speaking to Professor Kate Drummond, who's the Director of Neurosurgery at RMH. Prof, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And so we like to start these episodes with a few warm-up questions. Can you take us through or give us a glimpse into your day so far? What have you been up to? Oh, today's a very quiet day. I got up at 4.45. I was at work by 6. I did a ward round at 7 a.m. Friday's kind of a meeting day. And 7.30, I had a meeting about our research database. Uh, Later tonight, I'll have a board meeting via Zoom for Pangea Global Health Education, the the organisation that I'm involved with that does teaching in low- and middle-income countries. Now I'm doing a podcast Uh, So I haven't done any operating today, which is very unusual. In terms of what you're listening to or reading at the moment, is there anything that you'd recommend? So I don't watch any TV, although I must admit that in this whole lockdown thing, I've kind of been listening in the background to stuff that my partner's been streaming on his laptop, like really bad old episodes of Law and Order Criminal Intent because I quite liked uh, I quite liked Vincent D'Onofrio. But yeah, I don't watch any TV. And now that Game of Thrones is gone, which was the only TV show I watched, uh, I'm done with TV. I have been reading quite a lot. I'm reading that book Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Erickson to try and get some insight into human behavior and I've just finished reading that uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novel Overstory by Richard Powers which was fantastic I really enjoyed that I've discovered that I'm red and yellow with a little bit of blue in the background but no green uh, from the from the Surrounded by Idiots book I mean it sort of leads on to the next question which is what is one thing that you can't live without I could say like the obvious things like oxygen and food and water and sleep kind of, although I really wish I really wish God had made sleep and food kind of advisory rather than obligatory so, so that you could do them for enjoyment rather than having to do them because it is it does get quite boring that, you know, 11 p.m., 12 p.m. comes around and it's like, oh, my God, I've got to go to sleep again. Maybe I could just do all of that on the weekend and the eating thing just makes me nuts, like having to stop and eat. Do listen to music pretty constantly. So, you know, I think I would be books and music I would really struggle without. There is a saying that, you know, things are not neurosurgery or things aren't rocket science. Um, What's one thing that is your rocket science in terms of something that you find difficult or that you struggle with? Oh, geez. I, I would love to be creative in that sort of really artistic sense. You know, people who can write well or or, you know, I can write scientific writing, you know, my, 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 my language and English is good, but I don't have that creativity. I would, I would love to be creative. I wanted to be a ballerina, but the ballet teacher said, please don't bring her back. She's just too hopeless. I don't want your money. Um, you know, I've tried doing things like writing travel diaries and thinking that one day maybe they'd be published and I read them back and I just think that is so bad. Like nobody is going to read that. You know, even when I hear artists talk about their work, it makes no sense to me. I'm like, I'm just, I'm sort of thinking, well, that that doesn't seem like, seems a bit superficial or wanky or I don't know. But, and yet they come out with this beautiful work. So I don't, I couldn't be, I, I, I would love to be creative. I would really like to be good at sport, but um, I'm, can't catch, can't throw, hopeless. So uh, yeah, there's so many, there are so many things I would like to be good at that I'm not good at. From what we've, 
researched online. You grew up in in Sydney. Your mum was a piano teacher, and your father was a draftsman.、Um, can you tell us a little bit about your first memories as a as a child? What memories particularly stood out?、Uh, so I was adopted. My parents picked me up at two weeks of age. We first lived in Cogra, in a, in a suburb in Sydney.、Uh, then I then we moved to Westleigh, which at the time was like moving way way out into you know the the new the new housing estates. So we moved out there, and that that's where I grew up from age five. I don't know my memories. I mean, I have a, a, a sort of family holidays, time with my two siblings, school, all the usual things. It was pretty ordinary kind of childhood, really,、uh, but really good childhood. Are you older siblings or younger siblings?、Or? Younger siblings. Come on, I'm a classic eldest child, overachieving, all of those things. So, what were your parents like in terms of?、Um, I know that in the past you said they've been quite encouraging. I mean, encouraging, but without being、um, overbearing. You know, there were times when I sort of said at school or at university, you know, oh, you know, this is just too hard. I can't, I can't do this, and they were like completely supportive of that. You know, mum would go, "Okay, that's right. Put the books down. Don't worry. We'll go walk the dog. Don't have to study anymore. You can go to the exam if you like. And if you fail, you fail, and that'll be the message. And if you don't, then that's okay."、Uh, so they were like, they were really good. Like, of course, they were supportive and incredibly encouraging, but they weren't、um, they weren't too pushy. I think they would have been disappointed if I hadn't kept going, but they would have coped. They just wanted us to be happy. Do you feel like achieving in the in the academic or that sort of sense wasn't really something that was kind of an expectation for you? No. I'm the first person in my whole family to go to university. My grandfather couldn't read. Not that he wasn't an incredibly intelligent man, but he came from a time where kids didn't always go to school. Academic achievement is—I think sometimes they might be just a little bit gobsmacked by the whole thing. And it's not not until the next generation after me, my cousins' children, that there've been anyone else who's gone to university. In terms of you as a as a young girl, what what were you like in in school? Were you a troublemaker? Were you I'm、um, sort of someone that the teachers like. Where would you sort of put yourself? I was a bit of a weirdo, I think.、Um, I was quite a loner. I wasn't specifically a troublemaker, but I also wasn't, you know, a goody two shoes either. I hated organised sport. I hated it that they made me play sport. It was ridiculous.、Um, so I sometimes I got, I got into trouble when I used to hide during sport or refuse to do anything other than sit on the outfield and refuse to catch the ball or you know stuff like that. But I just hated it. I found it humiliating that I could not catch the ball no matter what I did. And once, like you know what it's like, once you've got a thing about something, it wouldn't matter how hard I watched that ball coming towards me and where I put my hands, I was going to drop it no matter what because I was in such a state by the time it came towards me. So yeah, I was I was a bit of a loner, you know. I had a small group of close friends, and you know we were yeah just regular kind of kids, but we were all sort of re- reasonably smart. So you know we sort of just kept to ourselves. I didn't go to a, any private schools or any special schools or or anything like that.、Uh, so you know we were we were just our own. We, we were probably the like the really dorky smart kid group. Moving on to sort of. Middle school, high school years—that sort of is a period of time where people can often find out what they want to do and sort of think about, you know, their careers and all that sort of stuff. What, if any, thoughts、um, did you have at the time about maybe pursuing medicine? None at all.、Um, in year ten, I wanted to be a hairdresser. I was actually going to leave school and. Mum, being as smart as she was, pulled out the yellow pages, which is what you did at that time. You didn't go online. You pulled out the phone book yellow pages and put it down on the table and said, "Okay, well, let's start calling hairdressers and see if we can get you an apprenticeship." 
And I thought, well, if my mum thinks it's a good idea, I better not do it. Uh, so I, <laughs> but because, you know, I was like having that oppositional defiance disorder that you have as a teenager. So um, I stayed in school and really I, I went through everything, teaching, science, law, medicine, but I just applied for everything at Sydney Uni because I didn't want to go to any other uni. I wanted to go to Sydney Uni because it had the nicest buildings. So basically I just applied for everything at Sydney Uni. In the sort of last six months of high school, a teacher said to me, you know, if you studied hard, you'd get into medicine. But I I hadn't got enough marks in my trials to get into medicine, so I had to really knuckle down. But then, you know, I got in at the university I wanted to go to that had the nice buildings because I was so dedicated to medicine at that time. In terms of getting in, I think you said you estimated you'd need 430 and you scored 431 on your HSC. Looking looking at the previous entry marks for medicine that, you know, 430 should be kind of safe. Yeah, and I got 431, which was, that was a stretch target for me, let me tell you. I only actually needed 425 in the end. What sort of um, subjects did you gravitate towards? Were you a humanities student, a science student, maths or... Music and English were what gave me the marks to get into medicine. So I sang and played the violin. I played the violin very badly and sang moderately well. But yeah, English literature. But I did, you know, physics, chemistry, maths as well. But yeah, English really was what I really loved. And this is now sort of the mid the mid nineteen eighties. You've started at uni. You know, you mentioned that growing up you were sort of someone who enjoyed being alone and doing your own thing. How did you find that transition to the early years of your life at uni? Well, I was an outsider at uni because I didn't go to a private school. So I was the only person who didn't already know someone in the year, you know. So there was like the King's Boys and the PLC Girls and the, you know, whatever. They they were all, and James Roos and all the selective schools and everything else. So they were all, they all at least knew some people. But I I eventually found friends. But I also stayed kind of with the group that I'd, grown up with in high school, all of whom were mostly doing trades um, or teaching or nursing, which would have been university now, but back then were not were not university courses. So I had good friends at university, but I socialised outside of university with sort of, you know, the people from my neighbourhood and my school friends. As a medical student, what was your kind of mindset going through uni? Were you someone who was like, you know, really gunning to to get top marks or? I didn't have the capacity to get top marks. I was definitely not the smartest kid in the room, let me tell you. <laughs> I really struggled with non-clinical medicine. You would not recognise the medical course. So the first two and a half years, you turned up at nine o'clock in the morning, you sat in a lecture theatre and you sat in lectures till five o'clock in the afternoon and you had one afternoon for prax. And then I left the left the lecture theatre, went across the road and worked in a factory for three hours, many afternoons, you know, a week. And I lived an hour away by train. I was just getting through. And I, I really, I hated preclinical subjects. It was just so boring. So it was a miracle that I made it through to third year when they started letting me see patients. It really was. But yeah, we had something like, you know, we had like 40 contact hours a week. Not like you guys are swanning around doing I don't even know what you people do, really. But anyway. Oh, we thought we had it pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. You think you've got it pretty bad, but you know, there was no going and finding surgeons for podcasts, that's for sure. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely um 
things have changed a lot since then. Yeah, and for the better. Like I, I absolutely agree. I was the very last part of where they they really believed that you could learn everything. So, so my group sort of of medical school was just before the genetic explosion. You know, HIV had just appeared. Viruses were kind of, you know, known but not really understood. Uh, and so it, it was very much that they were, they were going to teach you everything there was to know. Whereas, you know, now, rightly so, everyone agrees that, of course, you, you can't know everything. So you learn the basics, you learn how to learn, um, you know where to find stuff out, and then you sort of end up looking at y- your own specialty. So, yeah, it was, it's a whole different ethos. But I do think you should come to the wards more often. I'll just put that out there. So, Prof, I think your experiences of not enjoying the non-clinical side of medical school is something that a lot of people, including our listeners, can relate to. Um, I certainly don't think of you know learning immunology and physiology as the top of my list of favourite things to do. I had to do inorganic chemistry and comparative anatomy where I learnt a male turtle is the only animal in the universe that has three kinds of skeleton. Endoskeleton, bones. Exoskeleton, shell hydrostatic skeleton, penis. There you go. See, something that you learn in first-year medicine at Sydney University in 1983. I also learned how a the gut of an earthworm works. In those maybe first two and a half years when you struggled to, to engage with the course, did you ever think about quitting? Every exam period I was going to leave. How did you hang on? I'm stubborn. You know, my mother would go, that's okay, darling, just stop studying. We'll go and watch Doctor Who or something else and it's all right. Um, Don't, you know, turn up to the exam, go to the exam, don't go to the exam. It was sort of a circuit breaker and I'd go to the exam and I'd just make it through and that was all right. You know, in terms of you as a medical student, what things were you kind of interested in? Were you interested in, you know, the, the physician specialties? I was always interested in procedural specialties. I wanted to be an obstetrician is what I thought I wanted to be, but I delivered a baby and thought it was the most disgusting thing I've ever done in my entire life. I thought I'm never doing that again. So obviously I had to do it 19 more times because we had to deliver 20 babies. I enjoyed the gynae surgery and so I thought I'd do general surgery. But, you know, I I enjoyed critical care, procedural stuff. I was never going to be a physician. Too much mucking around. Again, this is something that's probably changed a little bit since you've been through medical school. I think these days what a lot of junior students tell us you know as as older students is that they find surgical specialties in particular things like neurosurgery to be quite intimidating what would you say to students who feel this way about the surgical specialties and maybe drawing on your experiences as well did you feel like it was intimidating at the time well i guess so but i mean it's hard to me that's kind of a a bit of a misnomer you know like neurosurgery is really tough but it's full of really good people it is intimidating, but if you turn up and tell us you're enthusiastic and you want to be involved, then we'll give you a go. I must admit, I find it a little, and this is not the student's fault, it's the system's fault. I find it a little sad that I'm likely to have five or six overseas medical students doing electives on my unit at any one time. And I might not have anyone from the University of Melbourne. I get that that's your system as well. It's not your fault, but you can still come 
you know, and hang out with us, we're very happy. And I do have some students who send me an email and say, hey, I'd like to come to a clinic or I'd like to come and watch an operation. And we're really happy to have you. So I'd say to people, you know, give it a burl, come and come and watch. Yeah, I think the intimidation part can also be a little bit because there's a culture of high performance in surgery and sort of high expectation. I was terrified to go onto the wards. My first day when we went to go onto the wards, I, they, they said, okay, just go up and ask the nurses um, if you can see a patient. So I thought, excellent. So I went up to a ward and said to the nurse in charge, um, I'm Kate Drummond, I'm a medical student, and uh, I was wondering if you had any patients with interesting clinical signs. And she said, this is the psych ward. And she said, why don't you try the geriatrics ward down the other end? And I thought, excellent. So I went up there and said to the nurses, "Is that, do you have any patients with interesting clinical signs? And they said, yeah, Mrs. Blah-Blah. So I picked up Mrs. Blah-Blah's file and opened it up and the ring binder came off and her 427 pages of her notes fell all over the floor. So I then spent all my time crawling around on the floor trying to put Mrs. Blah-Blah's notes back together again and then slunk away and hid for the rest of the day. But I had to go back and see patients and it was intimidating and frightening. But you can't expect your whole life to be comfortable if you want to do something difficult. You know, you've got to guts up and and, and and it doesn't matter what you're going to be. You're going to have to at some point guts up and get out there and do it. And I think also we, we kind of have this idea that if one person is not extremely welcoming, then there's something wrong with the universe. So yeah, that person might be horrible or they might have just had a patient die or they might not have eaten for 10 hours or they might have been woken up every half an hour by a phone call all night, or any other reason why they might not be the most, their best self that day. So give them a leave pass, move on, and ask someone else. As surgeons as a group, when I talk to other surgeons, we bemoan the fact that we don't have as many medical students on the ward, that we can show you how to put in a cannula, or you know, let you take blood, or tell you who to go and see because they've got an interesting physical sign. But there doesn't seem to be that immersion into a surgical specialty. So maybe on that point of immersion, um, as a medical student, were there any particular opportunities that you really sought out? Going to the operating room. And that sometimes meant staying till 10 p.m. and waiting till the trauma came in and saying, okay, well, there's not a million people around. Maybe I could scrub. And also just coming on ward rounds. There's, I still love a team ward round. You know, the camaraderie, the decision-making, um, you know, the jokes between patients, the craziness, you know, the helping each other out when you're really slammed and really busy, you know, all of those things. They're fantastic. And I think there's a particular esprit de corps that is very typical of neurosurgery, particularly the registrars. They're busy. Their life is really hard. And, you know, so I think when you've got a really high-functioning team, there is nothing more enjoyable than working in that team. So we move on a little bit and, you know, now it's 1988, you've graduated from, from UCID. And you, as you said, you initially wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology. You were thinking about general surgery as well. No, no, it was just my intern, my intern year. I wanted to do general surgery at Blacktown Hospital. So to do that, uh, I had to do a neurosurgery rotation. And what was it about that experience that sort of changed your, your trajectory? So really great team. You know, my senior registrar was just fantastic. But the patients were really sick 
and they really needed someone looking after them. The sort of turning point was a patient with a tumour called a craniopharyngioma. You know, she was going blind. She had pituitary dysfunction. She had a shunt. Like everything was going wrong. And I just remember thinking, wow, you know, somebody really needs to look after this woman and thinking, you know, that would be something that I would like to do. In terms of the the years after that, so you started thinking about neurosurgery, thinking about the program. What were some of the considerations that you had to make before kind of committing to neurosurgery? No, no, I committed in, as an intern. You had to pass the part one exam, which was a hideous, hideous exam. It was multiple choice and they took away marks if you got it wrong. So you could actually get a negative score. The college, helpfully at that time, would send you a nice letter after you failed telling you what percentage chance you had of ever passing. And the first time I sat, I had a 1.5% chance of ever passing. And I thought, hmm, this is not looking so good. But at least four, four attempts later, I had passed the part one exam. And then neurosurgery wasn't a particularly popular specialty. So the, when I got the exam, they were waiting to put me on training. So it was only four years then. So two years at Westmead, one year at Royal North Shore, and then down to Melbourne, six months of kids and six months at the Austin. So you mentioned that as a registrar, neurosurgery can be pretty pretty brutal. Can you tell us a little bit about how you managed organising your time in terms of dealing with setbacks or any challenges that came up along the way? Oh, look, I don't know that I really had a system. You just survived. We were doing like 190 hours a fortnight sometimes, and it was awful. People do not do that anymore. I mean, one of the biggest changes in my registrars, I don't do overnight call. We have a night registrar. You do a 14-hour a, a day and then you'd go home and you could be home for half an hour and you'd get called back in. And it was it was awful and it was soul-destroying and it was incredibly difficult. But also, again, it was about the team. You know, I worked with some fantastic people and the teams, like we just, we, we lived together basically. And so the people you worked with were the people who kind of got you through. Uh, and I had great bosses, you know, most of the time. I mean, every every team you work in, there are people who you get on with better than others. There are people you like and you don't like. And there are some people who are genuine, I can't say the word I was going to say, uh, not nice people. Or some people you just don't like, even though they're actually perfectly fine people, but you know, you don't you don't get on. But most of the time, you know, I had great people I worked with. I worked in great teams. You know, most of the time I like I really enjoyed it. The, 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 the fatigue does get you down. Probably no different to raising four children or running a small business so that you can feed your four children and send them to private school. People think that surgery and neurosurgery is the, the, you know, medical students think that somehow it's some sort of disaster career because of the hours you have to do, but it's not the only career where you've got to work long hours. And it's long hours because it's hard. You, you can't just do one version, one operation and then know how to do it. You've, it's, it it's a technical skill, so you've got to practice it. Do you think the the sort of grind of those couple of years as a as a registrar? Do you think they changed you as a person? Oh, I think they make you very they make you very resilient, and they give you a lot of stamina. I think it's, it's chicken and egg, isn't it? Because I might have survived it because I already had those things, or I, maybe it reinforced those things. I don't know. What about your life outside of training? If there was any time for those things, like how did you manage that balance? There's no balance. But I did manage to fit in friends occasionally and certainly my family. I always had time for my family. But that's four years of my life where I was training to do something really difficult, which has been a wonderful career. So I don't see that as a big loss. 
That was what I needed to do to get the thing I wanted. At the time, Prof, you were the fourth female neurosurgical registrar in Australia. I guess in other words, it was a very uncommon thing for women to do then. Can you elaborate on whether you think there were additional challenges that you faced because of this and you know, maybe what some of those challenges were? At the time, I didn't really think. I mean, there were the, the things that we call, we've, we've given it a name now, the microaggressions, you know, being asked to, to get the tea. But I, I just ignored it. It was like, it's such small fry. Now, I, I probably look at it slightly different now because people have put theory and a practice around it that, that says actually those things do make a difference. Although there were, there were people who treated me in a particular way because they had a particular view of women, they were still supportive of me training. They weren't telling me they didn't think I should do neurosurgery. They had a particular view of women and that involved some things that were probably not entirely true. There was only one bastard who was just an awful person. Um, but in general, and I had no female bosses, but those people were supportive of me training. I never had someone tell me I couldn't be a neurosurgeon because I was a woman. I had someone tell me that I couldn't be a neurosurgeon because they didn't think I was dedicated enough to be a neurosurgeon. But I don't think that was anything to do with me being a woman. And they then became a great supporter when I showed them how dedicated I was. So, Prof, the reason why I ask this question is that there's been a lot of discussion both in the media and within the medical community about the representation of women in surgery and some of the gender disparities that currently exist. What do you make of that and what was your experience of that going through training? So, of course, it's real, but it only has the power that you give it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that people who are genuinely you know, harassed or, or belittled or any of those things, that, that's not what I'm talking about because I didn't experience that. I, 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 let a, I probably let a lot of stuff go past, but probably because I felt really supported. The people who I was working with, and, and maybe that's just because I got in and did the job or, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just my personality. And I probably if I was a more retiring type or anything else, then it maybe it had been different. So I'm not condoning that behavior. And I certainly think it should change. And I think it will change when we have more women surgeons. And I absolutely think that the culture should change. But I also think that there's some, sometimes you can let things go that is to your advantage to let it go. So you finished your training and you were awarded your letters in 1997 and then following that you did three years um, overseas. No, I did three years here at Royal Melbourne, a mixture of research and clinical work and then I went, I went to Boston for six months clinical. I came back for a little while, got bored and went back to Boston for another three and a bit years. It's a pattern that we've noticed with a lot of the guests that they get their sort of consultant letters and then they do some time overseas. Yeah, it's the best time of your life. What did you What did you think you learnt in terms of not just the knowledge side of things, but maybe how people do things differently overseas that you can apply here? Oh, it's always interesting to practice in another culture, and you know, you might think the US is not that much different of culture, but they have a very different view of medicine. So, and it's interesting to you know work at somewhere like Harvard, where they're Harvard, so clearly they know the best way of doing everything. Well, certainly that's what they tell you. But those years of your life, wherever you are. It's a time where you you don't have the pressure of doing exams or learning or whatever. All you're doing is operating, but you still have the backup of not being the person who's carrying the can completely. 
So it's a great time in your life. And, you, you know, you're overseas, you're living and working somewhere else. It's great. It's a really great time in your life. That's why there's so many baseball pictures on my wall because the Boston Red Sox were my team and I've stuck with baseball ever since then. After doing all this amazing work and training overseas, Prof, you eventually came back to Australia. And for a lot of our guests, this is a point where they start thinking about or even start their own families. Is this something that you considered at the time? wasn't my thing. Later, I guess I, I somewhat considered it, but not, not at that time. I was just wanting to work. So, Prof, in terms of work, you did end up actually working quite a lot and you were appointed to your current position, which is the Director of Neurosurgery at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. That was like 15 years later. Okay, so I came back to RMH in 2004 and then I think it was 2017 I got appointed head of unit. In terms of like making those career decisions, I'm taking on the extra responsibility of being the director of a, of a department. How did you go about maybe thinking about that career decision? What factors were kind of in your mind? In the end, it's all about the patients. So you can't do good things for patients unless you have authority to make things happen. Um, so it's all fine and wonderful to, you know, trundle along in your own world and look, good on surgeons who want to do that and they may have other priorities like their families or this or that or whatever else and I'm not criticising that. But it's very hard to make change if you don't have some degree of power. I was ambitious to be head of unit but there were jobs that came along the way with that. You know, I was director of junior surgical training. I was divisional director for, for a while of sort of neurology, neurosurgery, you know, whatever. There were, there were jobs that came along while, but this was my end game. You can't make things better for people if you, if you don't have some power to make that happen. Were there any you know, particular instances that you found difficult to manage or, or things that you wish you could have done a bit better? Uh, well, I mean, I was really hopeless at research. I really was hopeless at research. So I took 11 years to write up my my MD, which was probably I should have just got in and written the bloody thing, which is ridiculous. Uh, so I could have done that better, definitely. I think surgeons communicate with each other in a very particular way. And even my partners said this to me, like, why are you guys so mean to each other? And we don't think we're being mean. Like, we're just being us. People who are my, like my best friends and he's sort of going, why do you talk to each other like that? Um, I, I probably would be smart to learn to communicate in a different way. But in some ways I also sort of think, oh, really? You've said in the past that there isn't a surgeon who hasn't had any serious complications. And there's a quote, it goes basically, every surgeon carries within themselves um, a small cemetery where from time to time they go to pray. I'm not sure if you've heard that what does that mean to you in terms of you reflecting on, on these issues? Neurosurgery is a, is a specialty full of death and disability, some of it caused by us and some of it inevitable. You've got to learn how to deal with that. And, you know, a lot of people don't. And I've certainly had young surgeons who thought they wanted to do neurosurgery who, who left after their first major complication. They're just like, I can't do that. But you either can or you can't. You have to have some faith in the idea that your overall influence in the world is for good and that you'll learn from every mistake that you make. But everyone has terrible complications. If you can't deal with that, you can't do, you can't do surgery. And I suspect that you, you would have trouble doing medicine. Although uh, the things that go wrong for physicians 
and non-procedural specialists are sometimes a little more at arm's length than your direct action with your hands, but still, you know, a misdiagnosis, a, a wrongly written prescription. I mean, you know, things still go wrong that you've you've got to learn to deal with. I think also with neurosurgery, there are some questions of sort of moral dilemmas that I think neurosurgeons face. Some death and disability is is inevitable. What is the role of the neurosurgeon in in those sorts of situations? Well, I think that the role of the neurosurgeon, and some of my colleagues would disagree with this, um, but the, I think the role of the neurosurgeon is 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 to ease the pain and suffering as much as possible and to stay with the patient. I mean that sort of metaphorically, to be there for the patient through ever, whatever process happens. So I would be one of the, the few neurosurgeons who would regularly visit my brain tumour patients once they're in palliative care and still go and visit. I, I haven't saved them. I might have extended their life, but staying with them and making sure that they know that I'm still paying attention is important. Most of the stuff that happens, you can't change. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, how can you bear all of this stuff that you can't change? Well, I can't change it, but I can at least try and make it more bearable for the person. I kind of don't get that that upset about it. And I actually think it's quite weak to say, oh, I, I couldn't I couldn't bear all that suffering. Our job is to help the suffering. Go and do something about it. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean fix the problem because many problems are at this time unfixable. But don't look away. In 2019, you were awarded uh, the Order of Australia Medal for Services to Medicine, um, in particular for neuro-oncology and community health, and also you're involved with RACS as a, a Deputy Chair of the Women in Surgery Board, and you're also a Chief Examiner for the college. As one of the few female neurosurgeons in Australia, a lot of people do look up to you as a leader. Um, what does leadership in, in sort of this phase of your career mean to you now? Oh, dear. Uh, I do quite like the saying that if you can't be a good example, you can at least be a terrible warning. I don't know. I mean, leadership, you're supposed to be a, a great example, but I don't feel like I'm a great example. Um, I feel like, you know, in lots of things, I sort of fail every day. But I guess leadership is just doing your best and trying to instill the values that you really think are important, which may not be sort of the values of everyone else or the values that, you know, that Everyone talks a lot about respect, for instance, but respect is a lot of different things. You know, it's not one way of behaving. But, you know, my my values are all around, you know, putting the patient first. Um, and, I, I, you know, I think way too many times we're starting to put staff first in front of the patient and that is very concerning and so I'd like to be a leader that stopped that from happening. It's about the patient. We're here for the patient. Staff, of course, are important, but they're the second consideration. I guess leadership means trying to be kind to people, but also having a culture where we give each other a leave pass for some bad behavior because we're all under a whole bunch of stress. And so, you know, realizing that, you know, not everyone is going to be their best selves every day. I think it's about being encouraging. I'm by no means the perfect person, but I can at least encourage people in their goals and point out to them what not to do and what to do and giving people opportunities. Leaders can give people opportunities. This is an extension of what you said about you know trying to make as much good um, to as many people as possible. You've become involved with Pangea. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what Pangea is, what the long-term goals of the organisation are? Pangea is a not f- non-profit organisation that takes 
teams of medical, nursing and other specialists to low and middle income countries, particularly in Africa, to run teaching seminars. Our I can't. I can never remember. We have to have a vision statement, a mission statement. I think it's our vision statement is to deliver the most effective healthcare education in the world. So that's what we want to do. Uh, we certainly want to grow and expand into uh, Asia. Uh, I got involved. You know. So here you go. You you, you think you'd have the twelve year career plan, including um, not for profit in you know. And and I've always been interested in working overseas and working in low and middle income countries. Um, And I've, you know, I've done a lot of that over the years. Um, But it was purely an ad in surgical news that like the comic that the college puts out with news in it, purely an ad in surgical news um, and wanting to go to Rwanda to see the gorillas that made me get involved. That was absolutely it. I asked my partner, want to go to Rwanda? And he said, yes, I've never seen the gorillas. Uh, So that was why we went. Um, and I sort of really enjoyed it and stuck with it. So it used to be called Specialists Without Borders, which we changed the name largely because sort of specialists is mostly a medical thing. And, of course, our nursing program and our, our medical student program is fantastic, so we wanted to make it broader than that. Uh, and we certainly wanted um, to have a bit of a point of difference from, um, you know, Doctors Without Borders because we specifically do education. Um, it was started by a fantastic general surgeon in Adelaide called Paul Anderson. Um, and, you know, I've subsequently taken over as, as chair and gone through the rebranding exercise and continuing to learn about business and all sorts of other things. But the, the main part of it is, you know, going and doing the teaching, which is fantastic. Is there anything that you do to sort of maximise the opportunities that that you sort of get exposed to? Well, you've got to be open to everything and you've got to say yes. You know, you've got to turn up and smile and say, I can do this. It's like what you were saying with people being intimidated on the wards or whatever else. Do you honestly think that I was like, sure, no problems being head of unit. I can see absolutely no problems with that and I am not scared at all. No, it's like terrifying sometimes. And, you know, turning up in Africa with 32 team members of whom I'm the leader and praying that the people who said they would have food for us to eat have organised it. You can't achieve things without putting yourself out there and being frightened and living with that. Say yes, be scared, keep going, and and, th- and things will turn up. But if you're, if you're always worried about every aspect of it, and obviously, you know, there are some things, opportunities that have come my way that I'm just like, you know what, I'm really, I'm just not interested in that at all. But most of the time I'll give, the thing, I'll give things a go. So you've got to be open to stuff and stuff will come. We have the most wonderful career. We meet all sorts of wonderful people. Things happen all the time that you have opportunities to put your hand up for. I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, getting through some of the difficult times in terms of your your training and your career. I'm wondering what was the most memorable learning experience that you had? You learn a lot when people make a complaint about you. I don't get a lot of complaints, but when you get patient complaints and you can look back, sometimes it's really unreasonable, but sometimes, you know, you look and there's the kernel of truth and you just think, you know what, I really could have done that better or that's a really valuable learning experience when a complaint's made. Like it hurts, it's awful, 
but it, but it's you know that's really valuable. I mean, I think there's a whole. I wouldn't say there's one thing, but there's a whole bunch of situations where patients have been in the most awful of situations, and yet they've managed to say thank you, or be grateful, or bring a gift, and you just think, oh, get over yourself. You know, really. I mean, I'm not having a bad day. Just get over yourself. You're a little bit tired. Oh, well, you know, plow on. You know, I had a patient, a family recently, and one member of the family is a 40-year-old in hospital with a terrible stroke, and another member of the family is dying of a, you know, a brain tumour that we can do nothing about. And you're just like, I I have nothing to complain about. Nothing. They're the, they're the learning experiences for me. And I, I often find if I come to work, you know, a bit sort of over it all, the, the fastest way is to go and see some patients. When you look back now at maybe some of the sacrifices that you've had to make for your career, um, if you had the chance to make those choices again, would you have made the same decisions? I don't look back. You make the best decision you can at the time. You've, you've said that you end up becoming the people you first admire. Can you tell us a little bit about someone um, or maybe some people who have had a significant influence on your career? Oh, yeah. So, so number one, my dad and my mum. But my dad was kind of the the dogged, you do things the best you can, do it right the first time. Obviously, you know, my mum for her persistence and her good humour and her grace. Uh, but then, you know, really the academic neurosurgeons I worked with, Michael Fernside, who was my mentor at Westmead, Michael Morgan, who was my mentor at Royal North Shore, senior registrars I've worked with, Ray Cook, Peter Spatala, they're all neurosurgeons now. Andrew Kay was probably my, the, the biggest influence on my career for just making me do stuff uh, that worked out well in the end. And, I, and I'm, I'm not mentioning a myriad of people who I've worked with and admired over the years. But it was, you know, it was the academic neurosurgeons that that I looked at, all of the people who have given themselves to make a difference. And finally, um, what can we find you doing this weekend? You'll find me, I'm trying to, you know, never waste a crisis. Uh, so I'm in lockdown. I mean, I can't, I'd normally I might go to the movies or I'd have a play. Uh, I'd go to church on Sunday, but, you know, I'll, so I'll do online church, live stream on Sunday, and I'll probably sit on my couch and, and write papers and, and try and desperately get to the bottom of my inbox. I'm doing really well. I had 750 emails uh, in my inbox, and I'm now down to about 140. So I'm doing really, really, really well. So it's sad, 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 but that's probably what I'll do. And I'll walk my dog. <laughs> but normally, you know, Usually a dinner with friends, go to, go to a movie, uh, go to a play, uh, you know, get out, something. Oh, I think that might be a good place for us to, to wrap up the episode. So I guess on behalf of everyone listening, I'd like to say thanks, Prof, for allowing us to have a little glimpse into your world and your, your career journey. I think it was really interesting to hear about the, the resilience and the sort of persistence that you've shown throughout. And I think that for our listeners as well, it'd be really inspiring to hear that. So Thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. 
The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support. Please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who's the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was produced by Karen Gunatalaki and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organizing today's guests. My name's Jason, and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.